All right, let's pray. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us, and lead us not into temptation, deliver us from evil. Amen. Pope St. John Paul II. In the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. All right. So the title of this talk is Theology of the Body, the Original Experiences of Man. Now, just a note about Theology of the Body. So Theology of the Body, written by John Paul II, whenever he was Pope, was a bunch of Wednesday audiences. So what the Pope does every Wednesday is that he goes out into the little circle outside of St. Peter's and he addresses whoever, well, not there, sorry. He addresses everybody who wants to listen on Wednesdays. So Pope John Paul II took advantage of that. He basically did a lecture series. A lecture series is now what we know as his theology of the body. And John Paul II spent a lot of time uh, with this before he was Pope, even, uh, I think even before he was Bishop, whenever he wrote his uh, seminal work, his first work, um, Love and Responsibility. So now he's Pope, he's addressing everybody, he wants to tell them about creation, and the whole premise of Theology of the Body is this. Pope John Paul II looks at Jesus's conversation with the Pharisees over marriage. And looking at that conversation, Jesus says to the Pharisees, well, the Pharisees question Jesus about divorce. He says, uh, Moses allowed divorce in your hearts because they were hard, but in the beginning it was not so. In the beginning it was not so. So this is how he begins his theology of the body, is looking at the beginning. Why does he want to look at the beginning? Because whenever Jesus talks about marriage, he tells us to look at the beginning. So we look at the beginning, these original experiences of man. And for Pope John Paul II, there are five original experiences. Um, and I will go through them chronologically as he does. Now, I'll tell you, um, I didn't know what I was going to talk about tonight until uh, Monday morning. Uh, as I perused through my bookshelves. So that means meat, mint, meat, moot. Uh, that I had to do a lot of reading. And uh, I definitely didn't hit all of it. And I'm not acting like I'm an expert in all this. Um, stuff that we've learned in seminary and other different, you know, other different forms. But I just want to go through all these as kind of like a brief overview and also the implications that we can take from it. So the first thing that man experiences in his creation is solitude, as we see on the board written so clearly in the immaculate handwriting. Um, solitude. So as we know, God creates man in the second Genesis account. For, uh, for Pope John Paul II, he'll look at like the two creation accounts, and he'll see the first creation account whenever God creates man in this sort of like procession, so to speak, like God makes the lights, you know, and then he separates light from darkness, and then the clouds, you know, the heavens from the earth. 
And then last and most important is God created man, male and female, he created them. So this first account is like uh, the author of Genesis looking at creation from a distance, you know, kind of like a macroscopic view. And then the second account for John Paul II is the author of Genesis looking at it on like a microscopic view, at a much smaller view. And we see that in the second account that male is created before female. In fact, for John Paul II, I mean, in, in really the Hebrew, um, we're talking about man, it's kind of like this generic thing, and then only once the rib is removed, it's like male and female. So, with all that said, man first experiences solitude, as Adam experiences solitude. And the way in which Adam experiences solitude is in two fundamental ways. So, he experiences solitude um, in regards to in regards to God and in regards to creation. So Adam, for John Paul II, John Paul II, um, so with all theology, all theology uses philosophy to help interpret it. So John Paul II, his big uh, interpretive philosophy is a, a philosophy called phenomenology which is basically he values human experience greatly. He looks at human experience and from human experience interprets the world around him. So for John Paul II, the reason why he values the body so much and part why he's constructing his theology of the body is because we know all things through our body. That's how I experience it. That's how I experience that this can is metal, you know, like from, from my body, right? Now, Adam, then, created bodily, is going to look at himself, deriving from his own nature, that is, from his own humanity, but also, sorry, I, I, I wrote this wrong. Uh, yeah, so, yeah, I was way off. Okay, humanity, you look at his own humanity, and, um, in regards to, there's not another sex for him. There's no counterpart. So he looks at his own humanity. That's what I mean by creation. Like he looks at everything around him. And he's like, well, the, the dog is not like me. And the bush is not like me. I am alone. So he experiences that from his own bodily existence. He also experiences by his own very nature that there's nothing else connected to him. And this is a big deal for John Paul II, is that we are our bodies. That I am not a soul that inhabits this husk that is a body, and that I can't just wait for my soul to escape this body so I can be truly me. No, I am my body, and is my soul that forms my body to be what it is. So man looks at his own body and says, I am truly alone. And this is important within creation. And we do know that God says, you know, it is not good that man be alone. But does God make a mistake whenever he creates Adam? Does he say like, oh, shoot, I should have created them at the same time? No. God knows what he's doing because this original solitude, this aloneness, which is not good, 
in itself, it has some goodness in itself, but it's not the fullness of God's plan, sets man up for original unity later. So there are a few notes that are good about solitude. So the first is that the solitude causes man to examine himself. It causes man to search for his own identity. If we are not created in this solitude, sorry, I'll, I'll get back to that point. So these original experiences, they're not just something that we look at in the past and say, huh, that's interesting about Adam and Eve. For John Paul II, these original experiences are like a music, like, uh, yeah, like a, a piece of music that's played in perpetuity, like it's played throughout all creation. So that these original experiences that Adam underwent and Eve underwent are all original experiences that we undergo. Like they're the fundamental lens by which we interpret our own experience. So we can all relate to solitude, even though we were not the first man created. We can all relate to unity, we can all relate to nakedness, to innocence, and to shame. So going back to that, and then what sin does John Paul II says, is like imagine this music that's being played all throughout eternity. What sin does is like someone bangs on the end of the keyboard, you know? Like the song is still being played, but there's a discordant note, and it's just, it's frustrating. It's not pleasant to hear. So that's what how sin affects these original experiences. So the first benefit of solitude, what it does, is that it causes us to search for our own identity. Because Adam looks around, he sees that no one is like himself. As we see, we see that no one is like myself. There's only one Father Stephen Pellissier, and I am reminded of that from my own uh, quirkiness frequently. But uh, you can all look at that with your own selves, right? That there's no one like myself. I am truly unique and unrepeatable, but that leads to aloneness, and it leads me to search for my own identity. If there's no one like myself, then who am I? And so this search for man's identity causes man to search for God because he has to look to his creator. An implication of this. So we hate solitude. We hate being alone. And like with all of these benefits of being alone, because we hate being alone, a lot of times we seek to numb that pain immediately by like going on Facebook, by... I don't know, uh, Candy Crush by like anything, right? Like whether those things be more innocent or whether they be more sinful, like, you know, drug use, um, alcohol abuse, things like that, that we seek to numb that pain of aloneness. But it's precisely this aloneness that helps us ask the fundamental question of who am I? Because I am unique. Now, uh, as we know, Adam does not find a help similar to himself. And that's an important experience for man to undergo, to know that there is not a help similar to himself at times, because it causes man to search for that. And so what this solitude does, it does not only help man search for his own identity, but it helps prepare man for unity. So this is what John Paul II says. The created man finds himself from the first moment of his existence before God in search of his own being, as it were, one can say, in search of his own definition. Today, one would say in search of his own identity. 
The observation that man is alone in the midst of, vis- in the, of the visible wor- world, and in particular among living beings, has a negative meaning in this search in as much as express what man is not, but as the, at the same time a positive aspect for this primary search. Even if it is not yet a complete definition, it nevertheless constitutes one of its elements, that man searches for someone else. And so man sees the dissimilarity in the rest of the world. Uh, some other benefits of this solitude is his subjectivity. This is a big deal for John Paul II. That man is subjective. He's not like, uh, you know, Fido over here who's kind of determined by his appetites. He's not like the bush, which is determined by sunlight, soil, and water. That man, and because man is his body, he can express himself and form his own identity in the sense that he forms his own character. And so this concept of original solitude includes, he says, both self-consciousness and self-determination. So man is aware of his surroundings, of himself, and of God, like the animals are not. And he's also able to determine himself so that he can determine his own being by his actions. Man can decide if he will be a good man or a bad man just based upon his actions. But... Um, by himself, man cannot totally understand himself. So this, but this man being alone through his own humanity is at the same time set into a unique, exclusive, and unrepeatable relationship with God himself. And so this solitude that, that we experience allows us to um, have this unique relationship with God. I mean, you see this all the time, like spiritual writers, right? Like, like uh, Teresa of Avila, like this nece- this necessity to separate ourselves from the noise of the crowd, because like to kind of get in touch with this experience of original solitude, so that we can be before God Himself alone, experience that unique personal relationship with God. But after that, it's not as if man experiences a unique personal relationship with God, and that's all that he needs. He only needs that. Again, it is not good that the man is alone. It is not good that the man is alone. All right. Um, Some other ways that it is good that man is alone, though, however, is that how man sees himself different from the animals. So we see in the Genesis account for John Paul II, what separates man from the rest of creation is that man is the only one who is able not only to determine himself, but to cultivate the earth and subdue it. So man works, you know, like that's a great dignity of man is that he is able to work intelligently and form creation around himself according to his own mind and ultimately, if done rightly, according to the mind of God. So that is one unique thing about this solitude is that we we, uh, see that great dignity that we have just uh, by ourselves, that dignity for work. Okay, and then eventually, all right, so that's that's all the perks of solitude. So those are our perks. Our perks are we have this unique relationship with God. We um, experience ourselves as self determining by our actions 
and that we can work, that we can cultivate the earth. The rest of creation does not do that. Now, then, that original solitude, because it's not good that man be alone, sets us up for the next original experience. And the next original experience is uh, unity. So, original unity. All right. So, look at the Genesis account, as Jean Paul II does. And what happens with man is that man is not awake whenever um, he is, whenever woman is created. And that is a significant detail. This is what he says about man being put to sleep. Perhaps, therefore, the analogy of sleep indicates here not so much a passage from consciousness to the subconscious, but a specific return to non-being. Sleep has within itself a component of the annihilation of man's conscious existence, or to the moment before creation, in order that the solitary man by, may, by God's creative initiative, re-emerge from that moment in his double unity as male and female. So there's this like transition that we experience from like solitude to kind of being annihilated, like this feeling of nothingness, to then emerge into this double unity. He says, there is no doubt that man falls into this sleep with the desire of finding a being similar to himself. So that man kind of desires this sleep, right? He desires... It's not good that he be alone. He desires this this sleep. Um, he desires to be like to give his own life, really, so that he can exist with another. That's what Adam does. He falls into non-being. He gives his own life so that he can exist for another. I mean, this is obviously the opposite of sin, where like we take the life from another so that we may exist for ourselves. If by analogy with sleep we speak here also of dream, we must say that this biblical archetype allows us to suppose the content of this dream a second eye. So this other element of sleep, where whenever we go to sleep, we dream. And so that this is man's dream, that there can be another one like himself. And this is like a fundamental dream for all of man, that there can be another one like himself which is also personally and equally related to the situation of original solitude. That is the whole process of establishing human identity in relation to all living beings, inasmuch as it is a process of man's differentiation from such surroundings. All right. Oh, don't need that. All right. Um, so then what happens? We know what happens. Uh, Adam wakes up, and ta-da, there's Eve. So this is what uh, John Paul II says whenever Adam sees Eve for the first time. In this way, when Adam sees Eve for the first time, Adam shows joy and even exultation for which he had no reason before due to the lack of a being similar to himself. Joy for the other human being for the second eye dominates in the words 
the man speaks on seeing the woman. All this helps to establish the full meaning of original unity. So, like, that, that's very significant. It seems very simple. It's like, duh, of course he's happy, you know? Like, he was alone, and then, like, he wakes up, and there's someone like himself. Like, he doesn't have to try to be friends with the dog in the bush anymore, you know? Like, life's a lot better for him. But that, that's the fundamental experience of man before sin. You know, a lot of times, the experience of man within sin, what John Paul II calls the historical man, us, is that we experience man like our neighbor as a threat, you know, not someone who we rejoice in their presence. Like that's not our fundamental first reaction. You know, that's that's man before he sins, but man after he sins is the opposite. But man shows joy and even exults for just seeing the second eye, for seeing someone as himself. All right. And the other element of this is what does Adam say? He says, flesh, bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. And he, I will call, you know, this one help, which is significant. So the fact that the first woman formed with the rib taken from him is immediately accepted as a help suited to him. So taken, taken from... Adam, but also Adam's experience of Eve is, well, it's just like her, huh? Um, is as a help. Again, significant. That is first thought towards Eve, towards woman, is help. It's not like nagging or like nuisance or anything like that. That he immediately sees the other before sin and sees the other person as help. Like made for him. Taken from him, made specifically for him. And so the... Uh, other thing about original solitude, part of this unique personal relationship that we experience, and Adam being created alone, Adam also knows he's created for his own sake. He's created simply, if God is good, he, he's created just simply to, like, as a value, as something that is good in and of itself. So then whenever he wakes up from this sleep, and then looks at Eve, he says, but also has particular value for man himself, first because he's man, second because the woman is for the man, and vice versa, the man for the woman. So because Adam is in touch with his original solitude, he knows that he is made good for himself, he then knows that the woman is made good for herself as well as good for him as a help, but also good in and of herself. Because in a sense, Eve shares this kind of original solitude where she is created just not just for Adam, but for God himself. So this is important, right? Like to avoid a big theme in John Paul II is the difference between gifts and human beings as an end 
rather than human beings as a means and as an object. And so whenever uh, he experiences like in good as itself, you know, like we could see that within our own prayer, right? That if I go to the chapel, I know that God loves me for myself, the more secure that I will be in loving the other for who they are and not just as an object. If I don't know that I'm created as good in myself, then it will be very difficult to love someone else as they are created good in themselves. For Adam, that's a knowledge that comes from this experience of original solitude. Okay. Um, So the other thing is that the solitude is necessary for communion. This is what he says. The meaning of man's original unity through masculinity and femininity expresses itself as an overcoming of the frontier of solitude and at the same time as an affirmation for both human beings of everything in solitude that constitutes man. In the biblical account, solitude is the way that leads to the unity that we can define as communio personarum. As we observed before in his original solitude, man reaches personal consciousness the process of distinction from all living beings. But at the same time in this solitude, he opens himself toward being akin to himself, defined by Genesis as a help similar to himself. So that by man experiencing solitude, he then opens himself to receive the gift of another. If man does not receive solitude, then he cannot open himself to receive the gift of another and therefore cannot experience communion. This is why we need solitude if we actually desire unity, if we actually desire to be with. Now, um, I am going, oh, the other thing, we only see in the first account of Genesis, this is a point that John Paul II makes, we only see in the first account of uh, Genesis, uh, male and female, he created them, in his own image he created them. Now, for John Paul II, in a sense, he says, we can deduce that man became the image of God, not only through his own humanity, but also through the communion of persons. As we know, God is one, but God is also three. And so there's a sense in which, like, humanity as the image of God is not simply the individual, and not just the individual. Like, yes, I'm created in the image of God, and you are created in the image of God. But more appropriately, we together are created in the image of God because we are a communion of persons. And uh, this is the life of the Trinity, right? This is the life of the church, that um, a communion of persons. And that reflects the image of God. All right. Um, okay, so then, um, just to talk a little bit about the meaning of the body, is we look at this communion of persons, that comes through solitude and we experience the other person as a help. And we only know this other person, not because like we have a direct knowledge of their soul or something, but because we see their body. Like I see your body, you see my body. And so what is the meaning then of the body for John Paul II? The meaning of the body consists in, okay, so the body's meaning for John Paul II. Reciprocal 
Reciprocal enrichment. Reciprocal enrichment. Um, so that, like, because experience, again, I'm a value in and of myself. I am created alone for my own sake. I then, because I know that, experience the other, even though I carry in my own body, like, this pain and this desire for the other. When I see the other, and I see them in light of God, I don't just immediately say, thank God, a help. And I can objectify that person so that I can feel better. But I know I'm created as a value myself. They are created as a value in themselves. So we are made for enrichment. If they are a help to me, then I must be a help to them. Okay. Um, all right. Now, uh, the other part of this unity so whenever this happens, whenever Adam says, ah, bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh, what he's also doing, and may not be obvious to the reader, is he is, whenever, for instance, whenever God in the first creation account, after he creates, what does God say about creation? What does God say? It's good. All right. Awesome. Yes. You get a thousand points. So... Uh, says that creation is good. He says that man is very good. So then whenever Adam looks at Eve and says, ah, bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh, basically saying, this is good, what he's doing is with God, he is in a sense creating Adam. He is affirming her for her own sake, as God does with creation. Whenever he creates, he affirms creation for its own sake. It's good in and of itself. Which means whenever Eve returns that judgment, that gaze of Adam is good, and then the full unity of themselves in the sexual act comes together, it means that the natural end of that sexual act is creation, is procreation. Because looking at each other as good, they are participating in that act of creation with God. Now they now that action creates with God the life of a new human being. And so this is why sex cannot be, like procreation cannot be removed from sex, at least the openness to procreation, is because it is an affirmation of good. Whenever I see the other and I give my whole self to the other, I'm affirming that they are good and it's good that you exist, as God says that to us. And so that naturally opens myself up to receive the life of another who is good in and of themselves. So, that's, yeah, that's important. Okay. Um, you know, there's a lot more cool things to talk about. And I, I knew this would happen, you know. We would, uh, yeah, yeah, anyway. All right. Well, keep on going. All right, so nakedness. The meaning of original nakedness. So before... Uh, John Paul II talks about nakedness. He talks about shame. So for uh, nakedness and innocence, especially for John Paul II, um, these are experiences that like we kind of have to recreate in our minds. Like especially innocence. Like none of us knows what it's to be like 
the like to share in the innocence of the atom. Uh, for one, because like we're born with concupiscence, but also deeper theological reasons. Similar with nakedness, like whenever we are naked now, we experience shame, and we we don't go back to the garden, you know, in that way. Um, okay, so whenever uh, looking at shame and this the biblical text saying that they were naked and they did not feel shame john paul ii says the author intends to describe this reciprocal experience with the greatest precision possible for him so he doesn't really know what it's like you know he can only kind of describe it the best he doesn't know like we don't know what it is to be truly to be without shame we all have shame to some degree, and we'll talk about later why that is. Um, and so for John Paul II, it's, like, it's not just one of man's original experience, but also boundary experience. It's that, like we can't really fully understand what it is to be without shame. We can only kind of piece together uh, what that looks like. But he says that in the experience of shame, what we experience is this. We experience Fear, so remember in original solitude, there's like man's own humanity, so man's relationship to himself, and then man's relationship to uh, the other, what's called the other, like, you know, male and female. So then in shame, he experiences fear in both of those respects. He experiences fear uh for his own eye, for his own self, and he experiences fear in the face of the other. Um, all right. So it's like, so for that reason, because he experiences both those kinds of fear at the same time, it's very complex. You know, like a lot of times we feel shame and we don't really know why, because it's we're experiencing fear on two different fronts. And yeah, we'll, we'll get to that if I, if I keep on shutting up about how we'll get to that. Okay. Um, all right. But what original nakedness is, so the beauty of original nakedness. So we know that, you know, they, Adam and Eve came out in their birthday costumes. They didn't have clothes. Um, they didn't need them because they're created in the image of God. But what this original nakedness is, uh, John Paul II says, the words, they did not feel shame, do not express a lack necessarily just of shame. But on the contrary... The words they do not feel shame serve to indicate a particular fullness of consciousness and experience. Above all the fullness of understanding, the meaning of the body connected with the fact that they were naked. So there's this like full conscious understanding of the other person. Because the body reveals myself. Like I am my body, you are my body. Therefore, before sin... Uh, this nakedness reveals my whole self. It reveals everything. And so what that original nakedness does is that it leads to intimacy. Is that it leads to total intimacy. He says that this original nakedness leads to total communication and affirmation. It says as such. So... Like, whenever you look at nakedness, a lot of times we just think, okay, like, like sexually, right? And this idea of unity, like, okay, it's boiled down to sex, but, like, this is not theology of sex. This is theology of the body, so so much more. 
Um, and so this nakedness doesn't just lead to communion in the sexual act, but it leads to communication, that we communicate ourselves and who we are through our bodies. Um, yeah, all right, I'm going to move on from that. So, all right, this intimacy looks like this, this intimacy of original nakedness, is that we see each other reciprocally through the very mystery of creation, as it were. That the man and woman see each other still more fully and clearly than through the sense of sight itself, through the eyes of the body. They see and know each other, in fact, this is beautiful, they see and know each other, in fact, with all the peace of the interior gaze, which creates precisely the fullness of the intimacy of persons. If shame carries with it a specific limitation of vision through the eyes of the body, this happens above all because personal intimacy is, as it were, troubled and threatened by such vision. But the man and woman did not feel shame, seeing and knowing each other in all the peace and tranquility of the interior gaze, they communicate in the fullness of humanity, which shows itself in them as reciprocal complementarity precisely because they are male and female. At the same time, they communicate based on the communion of persons, which they become a mutual gift for each other through femininity and masculinity. In this reciprocity, they reach this in a way a particular understanding of the meaning of their own bodies. The original meaning of nakedness corresponds to the simplicity and fullness of vision in which their understanding of the meaning of the body is born from the very heart, as it were, of community communion. And so this leads, John Paul talked about the uh, spousal meaning of the body, which is basically this idea of mutual enrichment, but, you know, with all the goods of, of spousalhood, right? Like for, for life and, and so on and so forth. So then I'm going to move on. This is, uh, I think this is his richest topic. Whenever he tries to piece together what the experience of original innocence looks like. Well, the experience of original innocence. And since I started nine minutes late, I'll finish at least nine minutes late. So, um, all right. So as we know, innocence is a mystery of man's existence before the knowledge of good and evil. And as it were, we are outside of that knowledge. So we don't really know what real innocence is because we now know good and evil. So we can like kind of make up in our minds what it is, but we don't really know what it is. All right. He says, the body itself of each is a witness of this characteristics, an eyewitness in regards to innocence. It is significant that the statement contained in Genesis about reciprocal nakedness, free from shame, is a statement unique in its kind in the whole Bible, so much so that it was never to be repeated. Think about how many phrases in the Bible are repeated. And the phrase naked without shame is never repeated in the Bible because it never happens again in the history of man that we are naked and without shame. And as we talked about, that without shame is more of a positive experience of the full consciousness and intimacy of revealing myself to the other person and the other person revealing themselves to me. 
So this innocence belongs to the grace of creation. So it is also thus that at its very roots excludes the shame of the body in relationship between the man and the woman, which eliminates the necessity of the shame in man in his heart or conscience. And what this innocence is, because there is no shame in this innocence, and what shame does is that shame creates fear so that I cannot be intimate with another person, at least fully, this innocence sets me up to exchange myself with the other person as a gift. Um, Yeah, this innocence... All right, hold on. Come, all right. So this innocence allows me to exchange myself as a gift to the other person. All right. Um, So we can say that this inner innocence, that is the rightness of intention, the exchange of the gift, consists in a reciprocal acceptance of the other in such a way that it corresponds to the very essence of the gift. In this way, the mutual gift creates the communion of persons. It is a question, therefore, of welcoming the other human being and accepting him or her precisely because in this mutual relationship, um, man and woman become a gift for one another. So what innocence creates is that innocence allows me, remember, if, if I'm shame, if I'm in shame, then I experience fear. So I experience the other person as a threat. If I'm without shame and thus have innocence, what that innocence does is that it allows me to love. And for what John Paul II, this is, is this reciprocal acceptance of the other. What this love is, what innocence sets me up to do, and as we grow in innocence, it allows us to accept the other as a gift, to welcome the other fully into me. I cannot do that if I am in shame. And so this dignity that we see in the other person in this innocence corresponds deeply to the fact that the creator has willed man, male and female, for his own sake. Innocence of heart, and as a consequence, innocence of experience, signifies a moral participation in the eternal and permanent act of God's will. So what this innocence does is that it sets me up to like participate in God's will. Because God's will, again, is to create for his own sake. For like the sake of, you know, that you are all good for your own sake. And so this innocence, whenever I affirm someone's existence for their own sake, I'm in that way participating in God's will because this is God's will from the very moment of creation, that he creates us good for our own sake. And so this, the contrary then of such welcoming or acceptance of the other human beings of gift would be a loss of the gift itself and thus a transmutation and even a reduction of the other to an object for myself, an object for my own desire. So, again, like to welcome someone in as good, to affirm that they are good for their own sake, is to participate in God and in his will. The opposite of that would be objectification, to reduce somebody to my own needs and to my own use. So that would be the opposite of God's creative will. He goes on to, he like, the way that John Paul II writes, 
is very annoying. This is why, like, a lot of people, uh, like, you, like, hear, like, a lot of theology of the body, you know, a lot of times. And, like, like I was trying to look up some videos to help make this more tolerable because, like, I don't want to read this. And, uh, and everybody says something totally different uh, because they're just trying to, like, reduce it to, like, a bunch of different things because, like, he'll, like, say something and then he'll repeat himself. And then, like, he repeats himself again, but, like, he gives, like, a little bit better definition. So he gives, like, 18 different definitions of shame. Uh, let's say this is number four. Okay. So, uh, but it's worth saying. So definition of shame. Shame corresponds, in fact, to a threat inflicted on the gift and its personal intimacy and bears witness to the inner downfall of innocence and reciprocal experience. So shame corresponds to this threat of intimacy. That's whenever I experience shame. And it will lead to, and, or what causes it, and then it'll further lead to it and reinforce it, is reducing someone to an object. Um, okay. So then he goes on and talks about innocence as shedding up uh exchange of the gift, um, the gift of love. So by preserving innocence of self-donation and of the acceptance of the gift, these two functions of mutual exchange, so the function by which I give myself and I accept the other. And if I do that with innocence, I give myself and I accept the other. Are the process of gift of self. Giving and accepting the gift interpenetrate in a way that the very act of giving becomes acceptance and acceptance transforms itself into giving. I'll explain that later. Um, talk about man's relationship with woman on the next page. But um, Okay. All right, so let's go back to the order of creation real quick. So God creates man. He creates Adam. Adam is alone. So then, uh, John Paul II is going to talk about woman for a second. Um, yeah. So man, then woman is created after man. So there's this like profound spiritual truth here. The acceptance of the woman by the man... And the, so he's talking about woman being accepted. So you think about it, woman is created, yes, in original solitude in the sense that like she experienced herself as like only herself. She does have a certain solitude, but not in the way that Adam had. And so this like is an experience that's common to all women. The acceptance of a woman by a man or the acceptance of the woman by the man and the very way of accepting her become, as it were, a first gift in such a way that the woman, in giving herself, in the very first moment in which the mystery of creation, she has been given by the creator to the man, at the same time discovers herself. So this is really beautiful. Women discover themselves by being accepted by the man. Like Eve discovers herself in front of Adam's gaze, not just in front of the creator. And like that, I mean, that's so true on so many levels. Like you see that on the flip side all the time. Like if there's like 
a, a negligent father or an abusive father, like it could totally wreck a woman's psyche. Because woman, by nature, is experience herself like as created, so to speak. She discovers herself in being accepted by the man. So she has been given by the creator to the man. And so she discovers herself in that way. Thanks to the fact that she has been accepted and welcomed, and thanks to the way in which she has been received by the man. So men have a lot of power. A lot of power, you know? Like, Saint John Paul II, whether he's knowing it or not, is, like, providing a lot of tips for guys here. Uh, like, you, the way in which you receive a woman helps her discover herself. You know, like, she comes to discover herself through your affirmation of her as she is good in and of herself. That's profound. And it shows why the objectification of women does the opposite. You know, it, it tears women down, it invalidates them, feel lost. But um, this is why, like, yeah, like, if, uh, pretty much, if you want to uh, make a woman feel comfortable, probably John Paul II would say, in her own shoes, make her discover herself, you probably just have to listen to them, you know? Like, you probably just have to receive them as they are. Uh, and experience their conversation is good for their own sake. You know? Like, that is very profound on a lot of different levels. Said it's hungry cheek, but that's very true. Uh, all right. Okay. John Paul II said it himself. Uh, all right. Maybe not in those words, but... But if he knew those words, he would have said them. Okay. So the woman is, uh, she's accepting the way in which the creator willed her, namely for her own sake, through humanity and femininity. She comes to the innermost depth of her own person into the full possession of herself when, in this acceptance, the whole dignity of the gift is ensured through the offer of what she is in the whole truth of her humanity and the whole reality of her body and her sex of her femininity. And so what this does for woman is that this finding herself in her own gift becomes the source of a new gift of self. So now that woman has been, now that Eve has been affirmed by Adam, she now gives herself back as help. These things happen almost simultaneously, right? Um, and so what this does, though, in real time is once the woman is affirmed in herself she becomes the source of a new gift of self that grows by the power of the inner disposition to the exchange of the gift and in the measure in which it encounters the same and even deeper and even deeper acceptance and welcome as the fruit of an ever more intense consciousness of the gift itself so basically like to the degree that the woman is accepted as a gift in herself, she then gives herself. And then man then reaffirms the woman's identity, saying like, wow, that is good too. You know, that is good in and of yourself too. And then she's able to give herself even more. And so there's this reciprocal relationship in that way. And then you see the opposite of that if, you know, that's cut down uh, through objectification. 
Because then the woman experiences that she has no good in and of herself. She's only good for use. Uh, so that is a very profound truth that St. John Paul II uh, plays upon. All right, so how, but then that's about woman. What about man? How does uh, man uh, experience woman? So man receives woman as a gift. Man receives from the very beginning the function of the one above all who receives woman as a gift. The woman has from the beginning been entrusted to man's eyes, to his consciousness, to his sensibility, to his heart. He, by contrast, must in some way ensure the very process of the exchange of the gift, their reciprocal interpenetration of giving and receiving the gift, which precisely through its reciprocity creates an authentic communion of persons. So what he has to do, the duty of the man, since the woman is given to the man as man's help, he must ensure that this process of exchange continues. Like God gives a woman to the man. What the man has to ensure is that he gives himself back to woman. If he does not do that, then there will be frustration in God's plan. Because God, in all of this, is the first mover. God is the one who gives woman as the gift. All right, so, but then there's that reciprocity, right? And in this way, woman has to come back and reaffirm man. So, um, man enriches woman by this reciprocity, but at the same time, man is enriched by this reciprocal relationship. So, you know, God, God gives, uh, God gives man Eve, and then man has to give himself back to Eve, and then Eve has to give herself back to man, but Eve can't give herself back to man, back to Adam, if she does not receive what Adam gives her. So man's identity, like his fundamental like movement, this fundamental experience, is that he experiences woman as gift from God. He, out of gratitude for her, gives his whole self back. And so then it's the duty of the woman to give what man gives back to him. And so this is why, like, whenever I do marriage prep, it's all the time, like, like the man is the head of the household and the woman is the heart of the household. The woman is the heart of the household. Why? Because like the woman is connected to all the kids. You know, like from the very moment of a child's conception, they are connected more to the woman than they are to the man. You know, like the the child experiences the woman as a home. The child experiences the man, the father, as kind of a transcendent outsider. And so like there's this natural head and heart. Like, and does that mean that women are incapable of being the head? No, it does not. In fact, in American families, what often happens is that women are by, na- by nature the heart because the man cannot be. And then they also become the head. And so then what happens to the man is that the man is invalidated. And so then what does he do? He just sits on his recliner and watches Sports Center. He's like, I have no, I have no role in this family. You know? Like, so what what women can offer back to man is validate their gift to them. So validating what man 
does, how man serves woman. That's like, that's fundamental in creation. That's the way in which God has written it in to our hearts. So um, man is enriched and experiences his own masculinity whenever his self-donation is received by the woman. Um, So yes, that is a uh, profound truth. So uh, uh, men affirm women as they are good in themselves. Uh, Women accept uh, men's service and affirm their self-donation to you. Uh, that, that's just like the, the grammar of exchange that is written into our bones. Uh, it is important, too, uh, that God first creates, like, within the creation account, marriage is kind of, like, mentioned later. So there's this natural uh, progression from brother and sister, John Paul II says, which precedes this relationship of husband and wife. That uh, Adam and Eve are brother and sister first in their humanity, man and wife in the difference of their sexes. So they are brother and sister in their humanity, their siblings in their humanity, more appropriately, I guess you could say, and then uh, husband and wife in regards to their, to their different sexes. Um, all right, now... He, and then, sorry, he gives it like a little summary of all these different experiences that we've covered. So both grow as persons, as subjects, and grow reciprocally, one for the other, also through their bodies and through that nakedness free from shame. In this communion of persons, the whole depth of the original solitude of man is perfectly ensured. And at the same time, this solitude is permeated and enlarged in a marvelous way by the gift of the other. If man and woman cease being reciprocally a disinterested gift. They do not give themselves disinterestedly and objectify one another. They recognize that they are naked. They experience this shame because this naked and without shame is this experience of giving my whole self over, revealing my whole self, and that being accepted without use by saying, I show my whole self, and that is good and is very good for its own sake. But if the objectification then comes into play, it is then that shame about that nakedness is born in them, a shame they did not feel in the state of original innocence. Okay. All right, so I'll go, I'll go longer than an hour. All right. But I'm on my last one, I promise. And that's original shame. So there's just like a few things, uh, bullet points I want to hear, hit here about the truth of shame. And from the truth of shame, how we can actually begin to eliminate shame from our lives. We can never fully do without shame. We'll see why. All right. So we know that what sin does is that it casts doubt on the gift and the giver. So whenever, like, you know, we talk about, um, like, man, you know, we've got it pretty rough for eating, like, you know, some fruit off of a tree, you know, like death, you know, uh, sin, um, the eternal punishment of hell, you know, like we got it pretty bad. Uh, But there's a lot more than what's happening. What's happening here is that uh, Adam is supposed to see the giver, God, and the gift, 
And then in doubting the gift of God's command, he then doubts the giver. And so whenever there's doubt in the giver, that reciprocal relationship is then cut off. So that Adam cuts off that relationship between he and God. It's Adam's move. It's not God's move that he, uh, he ends that relationship. All right. Okay. So, this then is an alienation, what this sin does, by casting doubt on the giver. That's the first, let's like, let's write this all out. So the first movement is this doubt. And what this doubt does is that it creates this lack of intimacy and full exchange, love. So then the love, the movement of love, like we saw this earlier, like love is this constant reciprocal activity. And so this movement of love is now stopped by this doubt. Now because of that, man only knows himself up to this point in relation to his creator. Whenever he then shuns away from his creator, he then experiences fear. And that fear, the fear is shame. And so now, whenever he sees himself in his nakedness, his nakedness which shows everything about himself. He's totally revealing himself in his nakedness, right? Because the body reveals himself. He then shows that he is alienated. He shows that he is alone. And so this causes shame because he's away from his identity. And that's why shame touches, this is why shame is so deep. Because it touches on the foundation of our very existence. Our very existence is that we are created by love and for love. So whenever love is frustrated, and then that shame touches on my existence. Because, um, yeah, I mean, you got the picture. All right. Um, okay. We move on. Uh, all right. So back to those two relationships that we talked about man in relationship to his own humanity, my relationship to myself, my relationship to the other. So whenever, uh, these are the deep theological reasons I was talking about, whenever Adam falls away from God, we talk about this innocence, and the reason why we can't create this, recreate this innocence, it's a special grace from God. It's not something I can recreate by my own nature, especially given by God. And so because of that, it's then removed with the first sin. And these, like, there are other, these other special graces. They're called preternatural gifts. They are, well, let's see if I can remember. Okay, gift of knowledge, gift of innocence. No, no, gift of knowledge, gift of integrity, gift of immortality, and gift of impassibility, gift of uh, not suffering. Okay. Uh, okay, so all those things now, like, we don't have. We die, we don't have prophetic knowledge of God, we don't have um, impassibility, we suffer. 
but also what this shame in myself is because of a lack of integrity. So man is constructed that we have our reason, we have our will, we have our appetites. My reason should govern my will, like what I know should govern what I choose, and I should desire. I know the good, I choose the good, I desire the good. Now man is turned upside down to where like I I desire, you know, I desire the, the, the sonic mocha blast last night. I choose it knowing that it will have horrible consequences on my body. And it does, in fact. And and that, you know, uh, that is how we are. And so there's a shame, this disintegration. There's a shame that I experience within myself, within myself, by my own, not just by my sins. Like a lot of times we think that sin is the cause of shame. And it, and it is. Because what sin does is that it reinforces what causes my shame, which is my concupiscence. Concupiscence is what causes this, like, bearing of shame. And what concupiscence is, it's our disordered desires. So, for instance, the man falls to the sin of, like, masturbation, pornography, or something like that. He doesn't just, like, do that and not desire it. Like, he did it because he desired it. And now he's molding his character, like, self-determined, to where now he experiences more of this upside-downness. So he experiences shame in his own body. Like, no one else has to be in the room. He doesn't have to be in, in, in relation to anyone else. And he'll experience shame. You know? So, but then there's also shame in relation to the other. And that when I see the other, and then I know that I cannot reveal myself, that causes a new level of shame. And a different kind of shame. So, um, that's pretty much all I wanted to say about shame. So, what do we... So then how do we begin to reverse shame? It's by changing and reordering our desires. Reordering our desires so that, um, and we do that, like you know, like Jesus says, whoever sins is a slave to sin. Um, we do that by avoiding sin and by living virtuously. And that will cause more uprightness and innocence so I can uh, better give myself. So... That's it. That's all I got. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, y'all have any uh, questions? Well, I don't know if we even have time for that. Y'all probably got to do John 15. No. Nope. Okay, wait. Yeah. Uh, okay. Gotcha. Uh, yeah. Y'all have any like uh, pressing questions about these original experiences? All right. I guess I just explained it so well. Oh, okay. Yeah. Uh, so in John Paul II's Love and Responsibility, you know, he talks about like us affirming the other as an end and not as a means. So like, for instance, I had a good buddy of mine and he was talking about like marrying uh, this girl. I love like how good she is as a girl and stuff. And it's like, man, she's just so good. She helps me grow better as a person. Like that's kind of a bad reason to love her. 
You should love her because she's just good in herself. And that's like a moment of awareness that you have in your original solitude in prayer for knowing that you are good in and of yourself. That basically like your identity does not depend upon your ability to help me grow. And your goodness does not depend on your ability, like even like, you know, the noblest of desires. Oh, well, she helps me become a saint, you know? That's great, but the moment she ceases to become that, then she's no longer good and affirmed. So what that does is that it kind of puts a price tag on them. You know, it's saying like, you are good insofar as you do this thing. But are you good in and of yourself? No. So how do you do that? I mean, just like, you know, a loving gaze, you know, uh, you know, yeah, you know, blink up. Yeah, 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 yeah. Not, not the eyebrows, you know. It's not a look, it's a gaze, you know. Uh, <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Take a good look. Uh, yeah. Own a magnifying glass, you know. Uh-huh. Uh, you you can affirm. I mean, like you know, like obviously affirm, like what's good, you know, and then but like recognizing that that comes from God, you know, that comes, like, not saying that you should not affirm that they do something good, you know, but recognizing like they're not good because they do that thing, you know. So avoiding that mentality. So, that is part of it. Like, you know, yeah. I mean, like, you, you can't deny that that's part of human existence. You know, in the same way that for Adam, it's not good that he lives alone. Like, he, he know, Adam knows that he's good in and of itself. But he also knows that it's not good to be alone, you know? In the same way, like, yeah, like, you should be affirmed, you know? Like, that is part of, like, just, like, a healthy development. Now, that that's not, like, it becomes opposite and twisted whenever it's someone else has to affirm me to show me that I am good in and of itself, in myself. I know that I'm good in and of myself in relation, you know, because God has created me. But that reaffirmation by man helps me to discover myself more deeply. It does, yeah. But it can't be like the first, you know, thing. Yeah. So, it's a little bit of both hands, you know. I do believe that, yes. So, man, so, big thing is uh, we are made for marriage, you know? Like, we are made, we're not made to live as individuals. So, because we are made to live in communion uh, with each other, communion can only happen with a real affirmation. This is what communion is for John Paul II. By affirming the other's existence. So, um, now a lot of times, like, we, like, you know, men or women might labor for affirmation. And it's not being affirmed that they are good enough themselves. It's that I look good, you know. 
or I am smart, you know. But our full development happens whenever we are affirmed by the other. You know, that's just like what community and relationship with neighbor is. Is that, yeah. Uh, yeah. Yes. Yes. So masculinity. Yeah, that's the thing. You know, it's like women accept the masculinity of men. Yeah. I mean, yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Sometimes. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I'm glad I, we've got all these people concerned about clarifications because I'll just like answer a question and be like, yeah, that's what I think. Uh, but uh, yeah, yeah. So, uh, but to that point, like, man is the first one who experiences that it's not good to be alone. You know, um, it's not good that man, you know, like man's not just like totally happy with God and is like, yeah, I guess you can create a woman, but like, whatever, you know, uh, that's not the case. It's not good that man is alone. Adam is a wreck uh, without Eve. So, yeah. So we are made for each other. Like, and this is the problem with um, on so many levels, like the way that we write laws in America the way in which we like uh, advertise in America, the way in which we are told to live in America. Um, I go on about this for a little bit longer, but is that it promotes the individual above the community. You know, like community is optional. Like your phone is created to make community obsolete. You know, like you can just entertain yourself. So live as an individual is an option. And really we are made for one another, you know? Um, so yeah. There, yes. So woman is discovered by the affirmation of man. Man is dis- discovers his masculinity by the reaffirmation of woman. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So they're still in relation to the church, you know. So like. Yeah, like, I'm a priest. I am not in a married, you know, in, uh, you know, I'm a celibate man, okay? Um, but, yeah, like, you know, St. Bernard Parish and Brobridge come out of church, and, like, the affirmation from the old ladies is wild, you know? Uh, <laughs> so, there's that. <laughs> The affirmation of my existence, you know? You say that it's good that I exist. Yeah. So, like, kind of building on that, like, you're all called to, like, the married life, like, as human beings. Yeah. Like, someone who is called to an extraordinary, like, consecrated life, say, like, a nun, a cloister nun, how is she uh, capable of, of reaching that fullness um, without any affirmation? Sure. So, like, even, even hermits, like the Carthusians, for instance, who is like the oldest order um, of hermits that still exists. Like um, they still get together either once a week or once a month and do like community stuff. One, even though they don't speak with one another, they all pray together. Like they leave their cells and they still pray together as community. They still do mass together as community. So even without words, there's still that like affirmation of the other's existence. So, um, yeah, yeah. Even even in the most, like, radical ways, the church still exists as community.
But I didn't, uh, I'll, I'll admit to you, I did not. He has a section in this, uh, in this book on, uh, on uh, all that, on uh, continents for the kingdom of heaven. He talks about it. Um, and to some degree, like that, the continents for the kingdom of heaven, chastity for the kingdom of heaven, celibacy for the kingdom of heaven, is the fullness, like Jesus says, whoever can accept this ought to accept it because it is the life of the angels. It's the way in which uh, man gives himself directly to God, you know, and is affirmed by God self. And that is possible now through the humanity of Jesus as well. You know, like celibacy for the kingdom is, has like a new flavor and a new dimension because God has become man, because God has taken on humanity. And so now the humanity of Jesus, you know, like serves as this affirmation, you know, for, uh, for man and his existence. So pretty cool. Yeah. Yeah, so, like, I mean, like, we are born into sin, you know? So, like, affirmation should be a conscious effort, you know? And I don't have to, like, affirm someone's existence by, like, going up to them and saying, I affirm the fact that you exist for yourself, you know? (laughs) But, like, to open the door for somebody and expect nothing in return is a way of doing that, you know? Uh, Like, to just... Just offer someone a place to stay and then ask nothing back from them shows like, oh, I'm good in and of myself. I didn't have to give you anything back, you know? So, you know, just like all the things that we do out of goodwill and be, you know, good, done for the good of the other can happen without a price tag, you know, can happen with disinterest. All right, that's it. All right.